Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. This is great. I'm so thankful to be with more of our church family. It feels like Sunday by Sunday. And so it is great to be with you. And those of you who are guests, it's a joy uh, to worship uh, together. If you have a Bible, would you turn there to the book of Romans? Romans chapter 3. And we'll be reading verses uh, 1 to 9. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. So as you turn there and click there, whatever you end up doing, that's where we will be today. As we're in a series entitled, For the Love of God. For the Love of God. The privilege to study through God's Word is a privilege indeed. And it's great to be able to do it together. So... Let's stop, and I want to read God's Word and pray, and then we'll go at it. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Paul answers, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles or words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means is the answer. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your precious word. And even as we read these words, It's an acknowledgement that sometimes your word is confusing. It's hard to understand. But the privilege is, you have revealed yourself to us in ways where you can teach us, where we can understand you. And Father, right now I just ask for a stillness in our own hearts. That although our minds will be stretched, I pray that our hearts are changed. I pray for affections for Jesus. I pray, God, that a love for you would abound and a love for others would grow. And so in a spirit of prayer right now, church, let's just take just a little space in this same spirit of prayer and bring all of your cares to the Lord. He loves you. He is with us right now in this space. 
Take your fears, your anxieties, your joys, your pains, whatever it is, take it to the Lord and ask him to do a work in your heart right now. We'll leave some space and then I'll pray. So, Father, meet us, I pray. Encourage us, fill us with joy. Bring conviction, uproot the sin sickness in our heart, but overwhelm us with your love. Give us a confidence in your love for us today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the title of today is, Why Does It Matter? Why does it matter? I remember (laughs) I was in college, not married yet. And when I was in college, I would go to work out in the weight room. And as I was trying, I was working out in the weight room not just to get stronger. There was an aim The aim was this, not just that I might be stronger, but that I might look stronger. This was about Sean being a chiseled specimen, okay? And why was this? It was so that I might find a spouse, okay? There was one sole unashamed aim. Now, here's the funny thing. I was in biological denial. The problem is, is that some people look like they're a chiseled specimen just by looking at weights and not having to work out. Other people have worked out and they look like they've just looked at weights and there's been no physical result. I fall in the latter category, but I was going to try. I was going to try because I had to win over my future spouse. Then comes homecoming at my school And we're at homecoming, and a woman caught my eye, a woman that is known as Dana Lynn, now Cordell, my wife. That's right, I shout too. We became friends. We went roller skating one time. We were just friends, and the time we were roller skating, she was holding me up um, because I, for the life of me, could not stand on roller skates, and she could. I was horrible. But God began to knit our hearts together, and then came the time my mind was blown. I forget exactly how this revelation came about, but it's when Dana told me that she doesn't like big muscles, and that sometimes she thinks they're gross. It was probably in a context of something like this, honey, I love you. I'm just so glad that you don't have big muscles because I think they're gross. And I don't know fully, but, you know, I don't know in that moment whether to be defensive or to celebrate, you know? It's like, but what do you mean? Like, 
you know, I've been trying, like, really, I don't have muscles? And then I mean, oh, wait, yeah, no, you're right. I'm glad that we found each other too. I'm glad. There was a crisis of belief. Well, now if I'm engaged to be married, which I am at this time, and she doesn't love muscles, <laughs> what am I doing this for? Why does it even matter? Well, a total reorientation of my thinking towards working out had to happen. A different motivation. I was working out for health. I was working out to be fit because she does appreciate discipline and being fit. I was working out to take care of my body that God gave me so that I could love other people even into my old age. I don't work out to impress or to outdo someone. Why does it matter? It does matter, but for different purposes than I began with. It matters to steward the gifts that God has given me to love other people, and it matters for the glory of God. It wasn't even in my worldview when I first started this whole I gotta work out thing. It was kind of a Copernican revolution. You know, the revolution that shifted from the world is flat to the world is round. And when the earth is the center of the universe and now all of a sudden we realize there's galaxies and galaxies and galaxies and the Jews learned a similar lesson. A Copernican revolution. A mind-blown moment that flips everything upside down. And this is where our text begins today. They're asking the question, does our Jewishness, our ethnicity, our history, and does our circumcision, that is our outward obedience to the law, does that even matter at all? Then in verse 5, 8, and 9, they ask, does our sinning matter at all? If it brings glory to God as a just judge, then is it really a big deal? The answers from Paul were yes and yes. Does your Jewishness matter? Yes. Does sinning matter? Yes. But for reasons completely different than they thought. Their lives, their stories, their Jewishness, their actions are all important, but they are important to proclaim God to the world. Here's the point of today. Our lives exist. One, to show the faithfulness of God. And two, to highlight the glory of God. The Jewish life existed. Their ethnicity, their story, their history. How they lived in relationship to God was less about them and it was more about God. Our lives exist to show the faithfulness of God, to highlight the glory of God. They were asking this question. Doesn't, don't these things give me special consideration as a Jew? That I've got the Old Testament law, that I'm God's chosen people, doesn't that make me better in some way? Paul's answer is, it gives you special consideration, yes. Your story matters, yes. Your ethnicity matters, yes. Your obedience matters, yes. Your not sinning matters, yes. But it's less about you and more about demonstrating the beauty and sufficiency and righteousness and glory of God. So friends, our lives exist to show the faithfulness of God and to highlight the glory of God. But we've got to begin by figuring out why in the world they're asking these questions. Why in the world did they ask, does our Jewishness matter and does sinning matter? 
And it's the on-ramp of Romans 1 to 2. So, we will begin with kind of a brief summary of 1 and 2, and then we will look at our two main points today, proclaiming the faithfulness of God and highlighting the glory of God. So, what would lead him to answer or ask these questions? Let's start there. What would lead Paul to raise these objections on behalf of the Jews? Well, let's start with Romans 1. Romans 1 begins with the glories of the gospel of God, the sufficiency of Jesus, his beauty and wonder, and Paul's longing to get to the church to proclaim this good news to them and to the lost world in Rome. But then (laughs) the book takes a hard right turn. And that was left on my part, but you know. Yeah, so it takes a hard right turn for me, which, you know, is right for you anyway. It's just I noticed it. Romans 1 says this, after speaking about the beauty of Jesus, the hard right turn is this. It speaks of, in Romans 1.18, the universality of humans as sinners justly deserving the wrath of God. Sinners justly deserve the wrath of God and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is Romans 1. They have suppressed the truth about God, a truth that is revealed to all. Here's the truth. That there is a God and they should be able to see it. Namely, his eternal power and his divine nature. No one, no one in their right mind stands on the beach and looks out at the ocean and states, look at how great I am. It's not what happens. There is an awe, there is a wonder because looking out at the world communicates something bigger than me exists. And it is divine. It's greater than me. And what happened is, rather than seeking out this God, rather than worshiping this God, we all have exchanged the truth of this God for a lie, and we've begun to worship creation, that is people, jobs, money, possessions, rather than living our lives for the Creator. And so he ends, chapter 1, exposing all of our many sins with this list. And we have been guilty of one, many, maybe even all in the list that ends Romans 1. That's who we are. Now, we enter into chapter 2. Chapter 2, Paul addresses a people who are judgmental. (laughs) And we all are at times. We all elevate ourselves either because of arrogance or because of insecurity, trying to make ourselves feel better We elevate ourselves and we put others down. This is the scene in Romans chapter 2. A judgmental people. In Paul's day, there were some Gentiles who saw themselves as better than other Gentiles. So there were some pagans and there were some real pagans. And so we might call these moralizers. They were judging other Gentiles. But there were also Jews Jews who were God's people, they had the law, they had the history of God fighting for them, and they were judging as well. They were judging thinking they were superior. And somehow maybe that might give them an advantage when it came to the just wrath of God. But Paul says there's no advantage to you. And if you all want to stand, Jews and Gentiles, if you want to stand on your own actions, 
just know this, we will all be judged by our works. On that last day, we will all be judged by our works. If you want to go at the comparison game and elevate yourself and show your goodness, that's all that you will have advocating for you on your last day. And that is a devastating consequence. Because on the last day, if all we have to show is how we were better than some person on the planet, we will still find ourselves falling drastically short of God's perfect standard, and we will experience His wrath and just fury and an eternity separated from Him. Our only hope on that last day is someone to stand in our place who is righteous, who is who we could not be, And so the Jews, rather than clinging to Christ, they were clinging to their history, to their performance. Paul says, if that's what you're going to cling to, God is not impartial, or God is impartial. He is not partial towards certain ethnicities. He is impartial, and he will judge all based upon faith alone in Jesus. And so... When Paul says, yes, you'll be judged according to your works, the Gentiles, they will face judgment because although they don't have an Old Testament law, they have what Paul calls a law to themselves. They have what's called the natural law. And what's ironic is they obey it enough to show it that it exists, but they fall short of obeying it perfectly so that they're under the just wrath of God. And so the Jews hear that and they're like, yes, that's right, Gentiles are rotten. And Paul is like, and so are you. And Paul is a Jew, so not just pointing fingers, he's placing himself under the just wrath of God. We have no advantage. and no, None of our actions will deliver us from the wrath to come. And so Paul says, to obliterate this sense of thinking. One, the Jews said, Old Testament law is going to make me better than the Gentiles. Paul says, no. Well, then they say, then he says, well, what if I have done the law perfectly, or what if I have done part of the law, namely being circumcised? I know I haven't done it perfectly, but what if I've done part of it? And Paul says, even though you've done that, it does not give you an advantage over the Gentiles. And here's Romans 2.28, which leads us into our passage today. Romans 2.28 is this blowing mind moment. It is this Copernican revolution. It is this flipping everything upside down. And it says this, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. And the Jew hears that and is like, but I thought that's what it means to be a Jew. It's it's my skin. It's, It's our outward religion. It's That's what it means. Our father was Abraham. Isn't that what it means? No. They're like, we celebrate Passover. We have these feasts. We observe the Sabbath. We're God's chosen people. Isn't that what it means? And then he says, nor is circumcision outward and physical. And they're like, but I thought that's the very definition of circumcision, a physical procedure in accordance with the law. Like, what is going on here? And Paul says, no, here is true Jewishness. 
Here is true circumcision. He goes on. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, or not by the commands of the law. The physical stuff was a preparation for the great reveal. What matters is inside. What matters is the heart. What Jewishness ethnically and circumcision outwardly were supposed to signify is that a Jew loved God and wanted to obey God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what happened is, is it flipped from communicating an inward reality to just being an outward reality. Hypocrisy. What Paul is communicating is this mind-blowing moment. It's a new kind of cut, as Pastor Travis said last week. Amidst a new kind of people. And friends, it's a cut of the Holy Spirit on the heart. Where we are awakened to sin. I'm just talking about, and hear me, I'm talking about something that the Spirit of God, who is alive and at work right now, in this room, in this moment, even through live stream, He is at work. And he is doing a cutting work on our hearts. My prayer is that for some of you who have never trusted in Jesus, you might experience this work on your heart right now as I talk. Like, that kind of thing happens. The Spirit of God, whom you cannot see with eyes, is at work. And he does a surgery on the heart to awaken you to your inability to save yourself. He awakens you to how desperate we are for Jesus. And I'm just praying and have been that there is an awakening in this moment of our inability to do anything that merits our way to God. And that there is an awakening in this moment of our extreme neediness. Oh, friends, there is an inability to make things right with God. An inability to fix our heart or to cover our shame and guilt. This is the cutting work that I pray the Spirit of God is doing right now. And then what happens is you cease to exhaust yourself with a self-repair lifestyle. You exhaust yourself trying to save yourself, trying to be good enough, comparing yourself to others. No, the spirit cutting work is a work where you desperately, humbly cast yourselves at the mercy of Jesus. Rather than taking a posture of, I've got something to give to God, the only posture is, on your knees, on your face, I can only receive. I can only receive. And just like you stand at the edge of the ocean in awe, Jesus has done everything you could not do. He lived the perfect life. He died for my sin and He took that upon himself he took the wrath of God that I justly deserved three days later he rose from the grave 
by his mighty power, conquering everything that I can't defeat on my own. I can't defeat sin, I can't defeat Satan, and I cannot defeat death. My posture shifts from, I got to give to you, God, to I receive all that you are for me. I receive your love. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your mercy. I receive your adoption, you making me your child. I receive your acceptance. I receive you. So today, if you've never trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, let go of your attempts at goodness. Let go of your attempts to impress or earn favor before God and come to Him. Confess your sin, your helplessness, and confess Jesus as your Lord. Confess Jesus as the one who's been raised from the dead. He is able to save you today. And so Paul, he just blows up any mindset that says, I've got some advantage over other people because of my goodness or my ethnicity or my story or anything about me. Romans 1 blew it out of the water and said, we are all guilty. And so, you can imagine, if a Jew hears this, (laughs) then the next question might be, then if true Jewishness is internal... And true circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. Then is there any importance to being a Jew at all? And is circumcision matter at all? That's the question of Romans 3.1. Romans 3.1 says this. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And honestly, we would expect Paul to say, there's none. There's no advantage. He just labored pretty hard to blow their, their minds to undo this idea that there's an advantage in them because of their ethnicity or because of their story or their history. And instead of saying, no, there's no advantage, he actually says, yes, much in every way. (laughs) And I'm like, okay. It's just a note here. Whenever we think things are just really clearly like black and white, like nuance is not a part of the Christian life, I just ask you to repent of that thinking and to read the Bible. Nuance is an essential part of the Christian life. Or you can't have one God and three persons. You can't have a God who is completely sovereign and we are humanly responsible. You can't have a Christ who is fully man and fully God. That's nuance, friends. We have got to understand things are a little more complicated than we realize. And this is what Paul does. It would be a lot easier to just say, nope, no advantage. (laughs) It's not what he does. Because it's just not the Christian life. He says, no, much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, Paul is distinguishing between what one brother calls like an identity and a super identity. Yes, we have ethnic identities, we have gender identities, we have story identities, we have economic identities. Like We have these different things like, what do you do for a job? Well, you can say, I do this for a job. So we have identities, but he's talking about a super identity. What ultimately characterizes you above everything else? Are you cut in the heart by Christ or are you a rebel to the core? This is the two categories. And so he is saying here, 
Our stories, our history, our journeys, they do matter. They're just not ultimate. So does our Jewishness matter? Does our circumcision matter? Well, they don't give you an advantage for salvation, but yes, they do matter. They're just not ultimate. And Paul, what he does is either through conversations or maybe even because he's asked these questions himself, he's posing these objections in the form of a question. And so the first question is, does our Jewishness matter? And the answer he gives, summary, yes. Proclaiming the faithfulness of God is why it matters. Your Jewishness proclaims the faithfulness of God. That's the summary of it. So, follow Paul's argument. He says, does your Jewishness matter? Yes, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, why does he say to begin with? Because there's more than just the word of God that makes Jews stand out. Romans chapter 9 is a place to start. It says, to them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. There's something beautiful about the Jewish story and the Jewish history. It even said, Jesus says in John chapter 4 that our salvation is from the Jews. But the Jews need to be taught a lesson. God shows no partiality when it comes to judgment or salvation. But that doesn't mean there's not a special place for believing Jews. And he picks up this discussion later on in Romans chapter 9 through 11. But right now he begins with the word. The word. Why the word of God? Why did he say, yes, much in every way, the Jews were given the oracles of God or the word of God. Well, what he means here is the Old Testament scriptures were given initially to the Jewish people over every other people. And it's in the Jewish scriptures where God revealed himself and his ways, first and fullest, to the Jewish people to preserve them forever. What would be a summary statement for the word of God? It is, God is faithful. God is faithful. He keeps his word. And the reason I know that that would be a summary statement is where Paul goes in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify thee? What are the next three words? Faithfulness of God. So, argument goes, he's entrusted them with the Bible. The Bible communicates that God is faithful and can be trusted. Well then, why, if the Jews are then rebellious, does that not uproot God's faithfulness and his plan to the Jews? So, the question is, what if some Jewish individuals are unfaithful? Does their faithlessness uproot the promises of God to keep a remnant of the Jewish people? Answer, verse 4, by no means. <laughs> That phrase is a fun one in the Bible. Basically takes three negative words and slams them together in a phrase. It's like it means no, no way, no how, never. It's like not in a million years is what it is. Meganoita is the phrase if that blesses you. You know, just use that sometime. Meganoita. May it never be. Not in a million years. 
And it sounds kind of aggressive, doesn't it? Like, meganoita. I think it should be. Don't mess with calling into question the faithfulness of God. I think that's the point. Don't flirt with it. Proverbs 3 says, don't be wise in your own eyes. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and trust that He'll direct your paths. Make them straight. Don't mess with calling into question the faithfulness of God. I know we feel it. I know we are tempted to trust ourselves, but trust in the Lord. And so, verse 4 goes on, By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Now, this text is complicated, okay? Let's just lay it out there. As we're reading through, I imagined if I was sitting in your spot and maybe I did not read it before I came in and you heard me read that, I was like, I'd be like, whoa, I don't have a clue what this is talking about. So hopefully we're getting there. But here we are. By no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. What does it mean for God to be true to the Jews? That is to be faithful to the Jews. Well, It means that he will fulfill his covenant promises to save them, to keep a remnant of his people. That remnant will be of believing Jews, those Jews who trust in Jesus as the Messiah. He does not mean that every single Jew will be saved, but that he is going to do a work among a remnant of Jewish people. And he also is not meaning that unbelieving Jews should be politically advocated for, as some policymakers believe. So, if the Jews rebel and are found to be unbelieving, does that uproot the promises of God to work among the Jewish people? I'll say it again. If the Jews... So God has promised that he's going to keep a remnant of the Jewish people. If they're found rebelling, does that then mean that God is not going to do what he said he's going to do? God will be true. Even if every Jew is proven to be a liar. That's the text. And then he helps us understand what he means by quoting Psalm 51.4. In Psalm 51.4... David is seen as repenting of his sin and saying his sin shows God to be just in punishing sin. David sinning shows God to be faithful to punish sin. Listen to it, Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What's this mean? God has promised anyone who rebels and sins, He will justly punish. So, their sinning rather than uprooting his faithfulness, actually proves that he is faithful because he punishes sinners. I know it's complicated, but I hope that you're following. They're arguing, 
does my sin as a Jewish person uproot the promises of God? God says, no way, no how. One reason that you see that is because even in your sinning, you're proving me faithful. Faithful to judge you for your sin. Verse 5 goes on, but if our unrighteousness, Jews bring up another objection, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. So if our sinning actually shows God to be faithful to his promises to judge, then what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? And Paul says, I'm speaking in a human way. Basically, this is totally false. But this is what some might say. If my sin brings glory to God and him as a judge, then why not just keep sinning? It'll bring more glory to God. And that's the second point. But before we go on to that, let's apply the first one. Here's the deal. We are not just here to try to figure out a text with our brain. We're here for God to change our hearts. We're here to be more like Jesus internally and then externally as we live a life of love. So our knowledge, our understanding of this text is meant to lead us to deep affections for Jesus. Deep trust in his ways. So here's the objection. Does Jewishness matter? Paul's answer, yes, it matters. It proclaims the faithfulness of God to keep his people. Your life, Jewish people's lives, exist to proclaim the faithfulness of God. So here's my question. If you are in Christ, saved by his grace, you might, wanna, you might ask yourself these questions. Can I trust God to keep me even though I am a wreck? The scriptures hold up. Yes, you can. He's trustworthy. He's faithful. He keeps his word. He will keep his word to the Jewish people. He will keep his word to the true Jews. That is those who have trusted in Jesus. Jew and Gentile. There will be a people from every nation, tribe and tongue. Bowing at the feet of Jesus. We'll all be singing one song. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And by his blood did he ransom a people from every nation, tribe and tongue. We'll all be singing that by faith in Jesus Christ. His promises are true. That's the point of this. His word is true to the Jews. His word is true to his people. So can I trust him to keep me even though I'm a wreck? Yes, you can. Can I trust him to be working for me even when my circumstances tell me much of life is falling apart? Yes, I can. Can I trust God to guide me when my future is unknown? Answer? Yes, I can. Can I trust him to be with me when I am physically hurting or emotionally distraught, when my body is sick and my mind doesn't work well, when my heart aches? Can we trust him? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And to this last point, Charles Spurgeon says this. One of the reasons we can praise and glorify God is how he is with and restores the brokenhearted. And here's what Charles Spurgeon says. 
Few will associate with the depressed, but our God chooses their company and stays until he has healed them with his comfort. He wants to handle and heal the brokenhearted. He applies the ointment of grace and the soft bandages of love. He binds the bleeding wounds of those convicted of sin. The Lord is always healing and binding. This is not a new work for Him. He has done it from of old. It is not a thing of the past of which He is now weary. No, He is still healing, still binding. So come, come broken hearts. Come to the physician who never fails to heal. Show your wound to him who tenderly binds them up. Can you trust him with even the most tender spots? The answer is yes, we can. He's faithful. He's faithful. And so, I just want you to know there have been times, to my own shame, Times when I was like the Jews, in the sense that I leaned on a background of grace. I leaned on a past experience with the Lord. I leaned on this time when God really showed up and really worked, but in the present, I was spiritually lazy. And it led me to be sometimes critical. And here's the question that is for us. What does past grace do for us? Past grace is meant to remind us of the grace for present pursuit of Jesus. His faithfulness to be with us today. Past experiences of God's faithfulness are meant to propel us forward in risk and faithfulness and love. It is truly amazing to me that at any time, any time, we can stop and call out to God and He hears and He's with us. The God of the universe loves us. He will quiet us by His love. He can still our anxious hearts. Friends, we must just be aware. We must just be aware that There are times when our last victories, like the Jews, they look at their storied history and they're like, that that has me secure in the present. We must become aware when we are leaning on past grace and not presently pursuing the grace of God. When we're coasting in the present because we have experienced intimacy with God in the past. The past intimacy is only meant to propel us into present action and love and trust and sitting at the feet of the faithfulness of Jesus. I get to listen to good preaching here as I get to listen to other preachers other than myself. But here's what I'm struck by. I listened to Pastor Travis's sermon last week, was so encouraged by it. I listened to it multiple times. And as I sat there and listened to it, what struck me is... This, right now, the listening over and over, the hitting pause in order that I might process a phrase and what that means for my heart, that is the hard work of living in the faithfulness of God. You cannot, 
I cannot expect to grow in spiritual maturity by only being a listener, a receiver. But I must be an active applier to the Word of God. It's like stoking a fire. You've got to add that wood. And we're just trying to blow wind on those burning embers underneath there. But in order for the blaze to go, there has to be attention in the present. Attention in the present to the faithfulness of Jesus. So finally, when Paul says, does our Jewishness matter? Yes, for the faithfulness of God. He also says, does our sin matter? Yes, in every way, for the glory of God. What do our lives exist for? For the faithfulness of God and to highlight the glory of God. I just want to quickly show you this because now the argument is hopefully clear. Let's read verses 5 to 9. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. He once again says, Meganoita! May it never be. For then how could God judge the world? He's basically saying, Jews, you want God to judge the Gentiles. You just don't want Him to judge you. But how could he be just in judging the Gentiles if your line of thinking is true, which is God is unjust? Nope. If God is just, then everybody's got to be judged for their rebellion. And your objection here, which is our unrighteousness, shows the righteousness of God. And therefore, God would be unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. No, 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 no. He says this, verse 7. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So if me lying, sinning in any way, proves God's justice as he will punish, or without repentance, he will eternally judge, If that abounds to his glory, then why am I being condemned? Why not do evil that good may come? And he picks this up in Romans chapter 6. Shall I sin in order that grace may abound? I remember I was a youth pastor at a church before TCC. And I remember we were doing a discipling moment. We were in a kitchen sitting there, just a few of us talking. And as we were sitting there talking, I remember some of these teenagers articulating how they began to think about their relationship with Jesus. And they said, sometimes they just choose to sin because they know God will forgive them. It's just like, God is gracious. And so I know God is gracious, so I can just choose to sin. Romans 6 says, may it never be. May it never be, because our sin justly brings upon us consequences. If we don't repent of our sin, it will bring about judgment. That's God's righteousness. That's His glory. But here's the issue. Here's the issue. The issue is that although they're right, that their sin in the sense that God then judges it, glorifies God's justice, that's only part of God's glory. God's glory is more holistic. The cross screams it, justice and mercy. And what they were doing was only looking at one aspect. It's like a two-dimensional diamond. What makes a diamond beautiful is looking at all of the facets from all of the angles. 
And so they're only seeing it in part. But this is what he was being accused of saying. Look at that in verse 8. Why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This happens all the time. People not asking what you mean and go ahead and judge you anyway. They tell you what you mean. We must not assume motives. We must not assume things. We must talk through it. And anyone who walks in that way and does not repent, their condemnation is just. But in the Bible, I don't know if you remember the story. When Moses says in Exodus 34, show me your glory. He says, show me your glory. God says, I'll show you my glory. It's going to be so glorious, you're going to have to hide yourself a little bit, but I'll pass by you and show me your glory. When he does, here's how he describes it. It's a description that is a multifaceted diamond, not a two-dimensional one. When he describes himself in Exodus 34, he says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Look at where he starts. I mean, amidst the Jewish people who were a rebellious wreck, I'm merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I'm keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's mercy and love, but will by no means clear the guilty. I will visit the iniquity on the fathers of the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He will be faithful to punish those who will not repent. But our God, for those who repent, is merciful and gracious. That's the full-orbed glory of God. This is what the Jews were missing in Romans chapter 3. Now as we end, I don't know if you see this, but there's a name conspicuously absent from Romans chapter 3 verses 1 to 8. Look for it. It's the name of Jesus. It's the name of Jesus. He's conspicuously absent because their questions about their Jewishness miss the point. Jesus came as a Jewish man to die for all people who would trust in Him. Jesus was the one who would who has given them a special place in God's plan. Jesus is their Savior. What's interesting for us is that as we read these passages, we lean more on ourselves than we do on the grace and love of Jesus. Alistair Begg, I was listening to something by him this week, and it was on Twitter, so some of you might have seen this, but he says this, if you were to die tonight and asked about entry into heaven, what would you say? And he said this, if I answered it in any way in the first person, I would be wrong. Because I, 
because I believe, because I have faith, because I have endured. And this is what the Jews are doing. What about me? They're placing themselves at the center. But the Christian says at the last day, the only one that I can speak of is Jesus. He died in my place. And so, why in the world do we fight against our sin? Why in the world do we refrain from our sin if it does bring glory to God because it helps us to embrace our true identity. It helps us to exercise spiritual muscles. It helps us to deeply experience the power of the Spirit of God in our lives. And more than anything, when you fight against sin, which is the opposite of what the Jews are arguing here, why don't we sin that God looks glorious? It demonstrates that Jesus is better. Every time you say no to sin, you're saying, yes, Jesus, you're my king. You're better. I love you. You're worth my life. And so, friends, today, you can be set free. You can be set free from being told you are lovely because of what you do. You are loved and you are accepted because of the performance of Jesus. And as Peter Cesaro says, you can be yourself because there's nothing left to prove. Jesus knows all of your mess. He joins you in it. And you don't need to worry about your ethnicity as a means of acceptance to God. And you don't need to worry about trying to sin to satisfy your needs. Instead, you have all you need in Christ. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I ask, I ask as we have looked through this somewhat complicated passage, I pray. I pray that you, in all of your mercy, would help us to proclaim the faithfulness of God with our lives and help us to highlight the glory of God in all of his multifaceted glory. Father, we are sinners, but may we not make excuse for sin. May we fight against it so we can deeply experience the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I pray, O oh God, that we would fight against sin so that we can say to ourselves and to an outside world, and most importantly to Jesus, you're worth it. Help our lives, I pray to enjoy the faithfulness and glory of God and to proclaim the faithfulness and glory of God as long as you give us breath. Father, in this moment, may we say, we will take God. We want Him as our healer. We need His mercy. May we never make excuse for sin. May we run to the feet of Jesus for forgiveness and hope.